This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. This is Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And this is Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And this is Unholy. So we're talking just after the news has come here of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, We're just in the immediate aftermath of that. Um, We had had some of our conversation before this happened, but we're now talking quite late at night on Thursday as this news is sort of sinking in. And I mean, you know, I was down uh, outside Buckingham Palace just a while ago and you know, it was one of those moments where you realize she was obviously the queen of this country, but the interest in her is global. It was like one of those scenes that is now quite a cliched scene in the movies where you have a a, a lineup of TV reporters speaking in every language <laughs> in the world. As I walked along, um, you could hear uh, French and Italian and German, obviously, but Arabic and Mandarin and Greek and uh, and so on. Hebrew. And Hebrew, um, and Hebrew indeed. <laughs> um, one of the reasons why I was down there was so that I could talk to you, Yonit, on your broadcast. I was uh, waiting for you did. to say that. Yeah, and it, a great pleasure it was <laughs> and a privilege it was too. But yeah, it's a, it's a very, very clear realisation that, you know, this country had a change of prime minister this week, and there was not that lineup of international reporters for that. Um, the Queen had a singular meaning, obviously, in this country, and we might talk about that, but she was also a global figure. Yes, and you think of the world we live in, right? Everything is constantly changing, and no one agrees uh, about anything with anyone else. And, and you know, it's so hectic. And there is this one figure that uh, that you look at and you kind of feel like, okay, she's always going to be there. And she is uh, a consensus, even, and we talked about this, uh, within the community that doesn't support the monarchy. But there is something about her, about that ability to hold on and, you know, not only the longevity, but the, the, the sensibility and the elegance and the intelligence and even the humor that she had, you know, um, it's, it's yeah. a strange thing to, to feel. I mean, it sort it really does obviously feel like, because it is an end of an era, but, um, y- you think of, um, the country you live in that is heading towards really immense challenges. And, and this is, um, you know, that, that affects everyone's mood. Not again, not only in, in the United Kingdom, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder for this country, actually, it is going through, going into a very, very difficult autumn, huge economic crisis, you know, political instability, six or four prime ministers in the last six years. And a lot of that was possible, all of the churn over Brexit and so on, uh, you know, the fate of the union itself, is Scotland going to break away? All of that was in a way containable Mm -hmm. because there was one constant sort of north star that stayed in place. And so therefore, you know, the world around it could orbit around and whiz around crazily. And that's constant, that point of certainty was her. And that's because two things, I think. I mean, the first thing is simple chronology, just the Mm -hmm. idea of someone around for 70 years. And so that she was not just the queen 
obviously for all of my life, but for most of, you know, my late parents' life and for, you know, a good chunk of my long late grandmother's life, (laughs) you know. So there's something about the idea of a person who was around and not just around, but head of state in 1952 and now means that there's something just reliable about that, like the weather or something that you can just, you know, is there as part of the British landscape. But the other thing I think is relevant, you know, we keep on one way or another, you and I, in our conversations, we so often go back to the events of the Second World War. And Mm -hmm. that's, you know, when we've been talking about Ukraine or Putin or Jewish things, it so often comes back to that event. And for Britain, for modern Britain, um, the, the sort of foundational event, the creation myth almost, what 1776 is to the Americans, 1940 is to the Brits, the moment of Britain standing alone against fascism, against tyranny, against Nazism. Yes, Winston Churchill was brilliant at creating myths, but this notion that this was our finest hour, Britain standing alone, that has become the sort of foundation stone for modern Britain. Mm-hmm. Now, who embodied that in British life? There was only one person left who was a direct human link to those events. Yeah. And that was her. She was, you know, literally on the balcony in 1945 when Winston Churchill on V-Day, Victory in Europe Day, stood there next to him was the king, but also the two young princesses, Princess mm-hmm. Elizabeth and Margaret. She's there. You know, that movie, The King's Speech, all about that momentous speech that George VI had to give to stiffen the resolve of the country. In the movie, when he finishes the speech about the war against Hitler, who runs up and gives him a, you know, a cuddle? <laughs> it's Elizabeth. She's part of the founding myths. It's as if, you know, in today's America, there was someone who was around at the signing of the Declaration of Independence or something, you know. That's the kind of meaning. And I think that is why this will be such a significant landmark in some ways the end of post-war britain has Mm. come today and Mm. that's a big milestone for this country and i don't think it's really hit people how how big a thing this is going to be in the coming days you know you mentioned winston churchill i remember remember that uh, magnificent play the audience and I, i think it's also true not only in the play that she had you know, obviously, she has to remain neutral and not show her opinions. I think she had, it's safe to say, two favorite prime ministers out of the 15 she met, the last of uh, which only two days ago, Liz Truss. And it's Winston Churchill and Harold Wilson, two different people, obviously, of two different political parties. And I think it says something about her um, that she could connect to, you know, different worldviews, different people. Um, some of them probably looked at her when she just started out as this young woman in a world where, you know, even today it's hard to be a young woman in a representative role. But then I could only imagine what was going through her head and what she had to go through to kind of find her fortitude and say, you know, I am, I'm the monarch. It's not an easy thing to to go through. No, I mean, what's fascinating about that is uh, uh, feminism has never really known what to make of the queen. Mm -hmm, And that's partly because she draws on a much earlier uh, tradition in this country. And there is one, which is odd for a country that you wouldn't hold up as some beacon of women's rights. But she she's in a line that has Victoria as the dominant figure of the 19th century mm-hmm. and Elizabeth 
as the dominant figure of her period, which mm. I know you know so well, mm. and are a keen student of. <laughs> and so she was tapping into some much deeper, almost ancestral notion of, you know, women's empowerment before the kind of current iteration of that, the feminist iteration of that. She, you know, something that goes back to sort of Bodicea or something. She was mm. tapping into that. But she also, in and, and it, mut it mutated in later years so that she be did become this matriarchal figure. And, um, you know, it's quite interesting seeing the sort of Jewish reactions to this as if, uh, you know, we know about matriarchs and all of that. But <laughs> it, she was on a – it was a different model, uh, tapped into, as I say, something very deep. She connected Britons to their history. Um, and, uh, and, and I wonder – how Britons will fare without that. They sort of, they, when they saw her, they could see themselves in a line that went to Victoria and Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. They could see the connection to the 1940 to Churchill, her, you know, literally her first prime minister. She had 15, as you say. Winston Churchill was the first, Liz Truss the last. Um, I wonder how it will feel without that sort of um, thick cord that tied this generation with its past. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the feminism. I, I think about that. Um, and I remember that quote. I hope I'm quoting it correctly by Elizabeth I, right? She says, I have, she said, I had the body of a feeble woman, but the strength and courage of a king. I, and I wonder what went through Elizabeth II's mind uh, in that regard. I mean, was it the same kind of thinking? Because she was in many ways, maybe she wouldn't call herself a feminist, but I think in many ways, I mean, if you are someone who in some way, you know, formulates and 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 is the head of state, but you're also you know a monarch that is so dominant. Then you are in many ways a, a feminist, if you don't even if you don't call yourself that. Yeah, um, I you know there will there will be lots written on this mm -hmm. line how she saw it. I think the interesting thing is that she you know when I talked before about empowerment, I don't think she used the language of power, and mm -hmm. that's partly because she recognised this was a constitutional monarchy. A really interesting thing to think about with her is she was in the business of saving the monarchy. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, she, the, def, the, what people often said who knew her well said the animating defining event of, it wasn't, uh, of her lifetime, not her adult lifetime, was the abdication in 1936 mm -hmm. of Edward VIII, her uncle, who only did the job for eight months. Right who for one thing there was a resentment of him because it he's him stepping down dropped her father in it who didn't want to do the job mm -hmm. but her view i am you know led to believe by all people who knew her well was that um that was a trauma for the royal family and put the royal family uh, in jeopardy mm -hmm. that uh, if if you suddenly had an institution that people could opt in or opt out of then people might the the whole game would be up, you know. Right. Well, in that case, it's not. It loses all its kind of magic mystique. So she was in the business of thinking that can never ever happen again. You can have one. You can t survive one abdication every five hundred years tops, and that's why she went on till her dying breath. She felt that the job was service, and there are, it is very moving hearing the speech she gave, even as a princess in 1947, yeah. when she more or less says, I will be devoted to your service. And she repeated this word. Even very recently, she signed off a statement, your servant. Um, that is a really unusual idea now mm. in an era of celebrity and sort of narcissism. That is such an interesting and different idea. But I think she thought without that, you don't secure the monarchy. And let's face it, when she was born, there were lots of crowned heads in Europe. 
and now there are almost none. And how did that happen? She realized this was an institution that needed to be saved. Mm -hmm. And she did it incredibly effectively so that people who, you know, are reformers, and I myself wrote a book 20 odd years ago calling for Britain to become a republic. We got very little traction and headway because of her, because people looked at her and thought, well, any system that gets her as head of state can't be that bad. Yep. And that, and you know, because she was uh, exceptionally good at it. Yep. And uh, the legacy, obviously, also things that she said in Glasgow just recently, a video conference, but she said, you know, we're not going to live, none of us are going to live forever. And you have to think about this and you have to think about the next generations. And she thought about that. And as you said, uh, her preserving the monarchy was uh, crucial for her. Uh, another open question, right? How, how effective will it be? Uh, will this royal family yeah. be without uh, her? And now, Jonathan, to the rest of our program, uh, which we recorded earlier on Thursday. We should talk about your neck of the woods and a big development, which you have to say didn't happen exactly speedily or with efficiency. And that is, after four months, the Israeli authorities have finally delivered a report on the killing of Shirin Abu Akleh, the Al Jazeera journalist, crucially a both a Palestinian and American citizen who was shot dead doing her job reporting in Jenin. People around the world have blamed the Israeli military for her death. Israel's initial statements was, no, it could have been someone else. It could have been Palestinians. It could have been caught in crossfire. But now a report, and um, Yoni, we have a guest uh, joining us to, who really can shed expert light on all of this. Amos Ariel is the military and defense analyst for Haaretz uh, newspaper. He's one of the sharpest minds, not only in Israel, but in the world, uh, thinking about these uh, issues. He's also the winner of the prestigious uh, Sokolov Prize for Journalism and author of three best-selling books. Most importantly, after saying all this, he is a good friend of our pod. And Amos, we're really glad that you could join us today. Hello. Thank you. Uh, you know, Israel, after uh, almost four months, issued its conclusions about the killing of uh, Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, admitting it's highly probable that uh, it was an Israeli soldier who mistakenly killed her. But it couldn't be unequivocally determined. But this is what Israel said, again, after almost four months. Isn't this a version that Israel could have just published a day after the tragedy? Well, maybe not a day, but this was a typical uh, Hasbara trap. A typical um, way of Israel to uh, mismanage a huge PR disaster, and not for the first time, as you've uh, mentioned. I think most of the facts of the event were quite uh, understood very soon, but somewhat typically, um, Israeli official uh, speakers all uh, tended to, to pass the blame to the other side, not only to say that this needed to be investigated and then we'll find the true details and, and tell the world about it, but also almost immediately to uh, blame the Palestinians and even um, uh, the journalist herself as being uh, reckless, as, as being uh, not cautious enough uh, while getting close to, to Israeli units and, and so on. In the end, I, I think that Israel has a point when it claims that uh, there's no proof that somebody did this intentionally. And being uh, there and covering similar situations in the past, I tend to at least um, um, give some credibility to the Israeli version saying uh, no soldier uh, has done this intentionally. But saying immediately that it was the other side's fault and uh, immediately saying that since she was a uh, 
uh, working for Al Jazeera, then uh, she's a, a terrorist collaborator or anything like that. And we've heard some terrible responses, both from uh, official Israeli uh, speakers and some Israeli journalists, especially from the right wing uh, as well. That was, you know, that was bound to end in a miserable way. There was no way on earth that Israel could come out well out of such a situation. But to do the exact opposite and to start uh, passing the blame to the Palestinian side was a, was a, a giant mistake, in my view. But even now, in this uh, report, it, the uh, authorities keep open the possibility that there was an exchange of fire and that that was possibly what led to her death. Uh, and, and people around the world have said that that is implausible. And I want to read you the words of commentator Mohammed Shahada, who said, it's entirely preposterous to maintain such a claim in the face of independent investigations by the Associated Press, Bellingcat, CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, that all concluded that there was no exchange of fire, no fire exchange at the time of her death, and that there was no Palestinian militants near her when she was hit. So that is the conclusion that all those big news organizations have come to. And yet this Israeli, as it were, internal investigation still keeps alive that possibility. Does it mean that people, this, this, these findings are just not going to be deemed credible? I think Israel is fighting a losing battle to begin with. It's very hard to explain, especially in the West, the activities of an Israeli uh, military operating inside um, a densely populated Palestinian refugee camp. Uh, it's hard to explain the background. It's hard to explain the fact that uh, people coming from this specific refugee camp uh, were involved in terrorist attacks in Israel a month uh, before the incident. And I think there was a justification from the Israeli point of view to actually uh, operate there under the circumstances which none of us like. On the other hand, uh, trying to explain this abroad, especially using all those Hasbara tricks, is, is bound to fail. I, I don't think that anybody in the West would understand or support uh, the Israeli position. Having said that, unfortunately, we know that journalists are um, many times and in many places in the line of fire. It's not the first place in the world that this has happened. There were dozens of journalists who were injured or even died even this year in all, all sorts of places, Ukraine and other uh, conflicts around uh, the world. And again, I, I have to repeat my assessment that I haven't seen any proof that this was done intentionally. And since I've been to the same place in Janine, although at night, on a night raid in early March, but I've accompanied the IDF on a similar operation, I've seen how hard it is to, to actually see what's going on from inside an armored jeep even if you use a marksman, even if you use somebody who uh, operates with uh, some kind of uh, sight on his weapon and so on, the line of sight is very, very uh, difficult. It's very hard to see who is exactly in front of you. And therefore, some of the assumptions that this specific soldier knew that this was a journalist and intentionally decided to kill her because, I don't know, because of hatred towards Palestinians or Al Jazeera or whatever, I haven't seen any proof uh, that this has happened. It has happened in the past, not with journalists, but with unarmed uh, civilians or, uh, or neutralized uh, terrorists or whatever you'd like to call them. If you go back to the Azaria case, which shattered the whole Israeli society in 2015, in that case, it was very, very clear. There was a, a young Palestinian man who stabbed two soldiers, was injured, was lying unconscious and wounded on the floor. And you had an Israeli 
a soldier in front of the cameras shooting him in cold blood. This caused quite a storm, and we could see the rift inside Israeli society in which, on the one hand, the army's top brass and even the defense minister, and to some extent, even Prime Minister Netanyahu were saying, look, this is not who we are, this is not how we behave, and this soldier would be put on trial. On the other hand, we've seen the majority of the Israeli society, according to all public opinion polls, saying this is our collective son. Even if he has uh, made a mistake, he's still ours, and we support him uh, come what may. I think this case is slightly different. Of course, it uh, brings about a lot more public attention in, in the West because she was a journalist, because she was an American citizen as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned her being an American citizen. I want to uh, pull on that thread for a minute because we saw the United States saying that it would urge Israel, it said it on Tuesday, urge Israel to reconsider its rules of engagement to prevent similar incidents from happening. Lapid and Gantz quite forcefully responding to this. Obviously, we're in an election season saying, you know, no one will, we won't allow them to put an IDF soldier on trial and no one's going to tell us how to, you know, decide on our rules of engagement. By the way, a logical statement for for a sovereign state. Can you sort of... Uh, walk us through this. Is this a true, a real crisis right now between the United States and Israel? Or is this a lot of internal politics on the Israeli side, you know, playing out on the international stage as well? I think this is somewhat convenient to both sides. Uh, We have to remember, this is a a liberal democratic administration in the United States. Uh, Trump didn't care one bit uh, whether Palestinians were killed in the West Bank and under which uh, circumstances. The Biden administration has to act differently in a way, it's an extension of the Obama administration's uh, attitude towards Israel. And since Biden is doing absolutely nothing about the peace process, and he's only paid lip service to the possible future of a peaceful relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians, this is an area which is convenient for the Americans to operate. They criticize Israel, they expect Israel to behave better and so on. And since in this case, Shireen was both a, a journalist and an American citizen, I think this was to some extent uh, expected that uh, there will be a a similar response from the State Department. On the other hand, we have to remember that both Lapid and Gantz are running up for office. The 1st of November, of course, you've mentioned that, I believe, uh, in your podcast. Uh, (laughs) Once or twice. Once or twice. Another round. Yeah, we're going to face another round of elections. Lapid, to begin with, is um, uh, criticized by the right wing. And a lot of Israeli citizens, a lot of Israeli voters somehow doubt his they doubt that he's actually fit for the for the job to make life and death decisions on matter of security. The right wing keeps uh, pointing out to the fact that he was only a military uh, journalist in his uh, army service and so on. This is his uh, chance to support the troops, to say we're fully behind uh, the IDF chief of staff, Kohavi. Uh, we won't let any other uh, friendly uh, nation intervene with uh, the way we uh, conduct our troops in the West Bank with rules of engagement and so on. Uh, Gantz took exactly the same uh, stance uh, yesterday. It was if they were speaking from the same uh, page. But I don't think that this will become a major issue between the, the two states. Uh, right now, we saw the State Department's uh, response immediately after Lapid and uh, Gantz uh, criticized them. We, took, we saw the Americans uh, taking one or two steps back. I don't think that this is becoming a, a major point of co- conflict. It's the Americans doing lip service to the cause of fighting the occupation and criticizing Israel but nothing bigger than that at the moment. Would it be too cynical, Amos, to suspect that the entire sequence was choreographed in advance 
so that Biden and Lapid agree, look, I will give you this slap on the wrist, you will give me a slap on the wrist back, and then both of us can turn to our respective publics and say, yeah, we did what you expected us to do, and now the relationship continues as before. Look, Jonathan, I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not sure that both sides are that good in handling these matters, especially the, the, the current Israeli government. But other than that, yes, I think it's very convenient for both sides. Everybody has a part to play. Nothing has changed uh, much. And for the time being, Lapid, his uh, hope is to somehow slide through this uh, next period of seven and a half weeks with no major uh, military conflicts, no major failures of the strategic, uh, uh, different strategic arenas in order to arrive uh, safe and sound in 1st of November and hope for at least for a draw uh, with Netanyahu. I, I mean, let's let's talk about that a little bit and that, that point of, of friction maybe between defense and politics. I mean, obviously, Lapid and Gantz, there's no love lost between those two, and that's to put it mildly. Both are trying to become prime minister on November 1st. One is the prime minister, one is the defense minister. How does that actually work between them? Are they cooperating well? Does Lapid delegate all of the authority on these matters to, to Gantz himself? I mean, how does that work? Look, it, it works okay when you compare that to Netanyahu and Gantz. I mean, the animosity between Netanyahu and Gantz, I, I assume, was even greater considering the last uh, months of Netanyahu's government. Having said that, there's, as you've mentioned, there's quite a lot of bad blood between Lapid and Gantz, especially over the period of time in the beginning of the pandemic. You remember when Gantz and Ashkenazi decided as part of the Blue and White Party to join uh, Netanyahu's government and um, Lapid and Yelon uh, went the other way. Uh, Gantz does not really think highly of Lapid's capability as a prime minister or Lapid's uh, preparedness to deal with such uh, important matters as uh, peace and war and uh, so on. Other than that, I think Lapid is taking a step back whenever it comes to handling the day-to-day -day issues. The best example for that was the operation in Gaza last month. You could see that it was handled by Gantz and Kochavi mostly, and not so much by Lapid himself. Uh, he makes the public appearances. He makes a point of um, having close discussions, which are somehow uh, filmed, at least the, the openings of these discussions, with uh, the chief of uh, Mossad, David Barnea, and so on. Uh, he seems to be to have a sort of a hands-on attitude towards the, the Iranian issue, which is considered you know, the main event. But other than that, when it comes to handling the daily business of, uh, of fighting Palestinians in the West Bank or making decisions about... Uh, air force attacks, airstrikes in Syria and so on, I think uh, he prefers to leave uh, that business to Gantz, hoping that A, nothing serious happens, and B, if something does uh, fail, that most of the fingers would be pointed to Gantz and not to himself. It's fascinating, the politics of that, and, and, and you've explained it. Before we leave the substance, though, of the Shirin Abu Akleh case, just sort of one specific point about that and one large one. The specific point, I suppose, is just this thing. Again, it's about how this plays partly in Western public. I mean, you were making the point that, of course, the report says the soldier did not deliberately target a journalist. But I think the report went further and said that the soldier could not possibly have known he was hitting a journalist. And that is the thing that I think people outside think is implausible. So I just like your sort of reaction on that. And the larger point, and they're, they're related, are these figures which tell us that, you know, since January of this year, over 80 Palestinians have been 
killed. Most of them, Israel said, are you know were fighters, but there were definitely civilians in there as well. Obviously, twenty Israelis to some mixture of civilians and soldiers killed in combat. But putting the two things together, people do wonder that number looks high, and people say, you know, does that mean conflict is you know escalating, violence is exploding, or and this goes back to the point about the killing of a journalist. Are the military being less careful? I mean, and even the phrase is used trigger happy to the point where somebody can be, you know, killing a journalist doing her job. I, I know those are two things, but I think they're related because they're about the degree of sort of care that is being used here. Okay, I'll try to, to separate my answer to two different questions. First of all, regarding the incident. I think that the army may be slightly going too far in its defense of the actual soldier, saying that there was no way he could see. I don't know. As I've told you, I've been not as a, uh, as a soldier, but as a journalist, I've been to a similar situation. I saw soldiers shooting from inside the jeep in which I was uh, traveling, and I saw how hard it was to actually make the distinction between civilians and fighters, especially at night, but even uh, when there is daylight around. Uh, if you look at the terrain, if you see how populated, how close everything is, and you consider the fact that there was some fighting exchange, some uh, fire was exchanged uh, earlier, then I think you can understand the difficulties of people under uh, operating under these circumstances. It's true. And even when they're identified as press on yes, their... Yes, when it's 250 or 240 sure. yards away, and considering everything else that was going on, look, I'm not objective about this. I'm an Israeli. I served in the army in the past. I can't tell you for sure that I know exactly what happened and that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not watching this from uh, from New York or, or anywhere else. I sit in Tel Aviv. And, and, you know, you stand where you sit on, on these issues. But other than that, I, I think that, the, again, it's what I call the Hezbollah trap. The, 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 they're so keen on defending the Israeli position, which is sometimes very hard to defend, that they go through some illogical explanations uh, sometimes. Regarding the, the, the bigger picture, look, we've uh, seen this wave of attacks that began late in March. This is not done top down, but actually bottom up. These are, if you'd like, it's sort of a grassroots movement, a very armed grassroots uh, movement. These are not members of the Palestinian Authority security forces, not members of the of Fatah, of the, of the PLO, not even members in most cases of Islamic Jihad and Hamas. These are young men, very frustrated with the daily circumstances, having no belief whatsoever in Israel or the uh, regime of Mahmoud Abbas, who's 86 years old and hardly... Uh, communicates with them, and they are eager to fight. In some of these cases, people go to Tel Aviv or Bnei Brak and murder innocent civilians. In others, once the IDF comes knocking and uh, tries to, to make arrests of these suspects, people, in their view, are defending their homes. And these are dozens and dozens. It's believed that in Nablus, for instance, there were more than 200 gunmen involved in the latest rounds of events when there were military operations there. So under these circumstances, a lot of people get killed. Again, the fact that Israeli soldiers are defended and are operating from within heavily armored jeeps means that there are no real, not many uh, casualties on the Israeli side among soldiers and policemen and so on. But almost every day, including uh, the previous night between Wednesday and Thursday, Palestinians are getting killed in those uh, fights. I, I think that 70 to 80% of these cases 
These are actually all men, and you can see their posters later on and the photo uh, photographs and what's uh, uh, been published in social media and so on. You can see them with their M16s or with the Kalachnikovs, the AK-47s, and so on. But yes, sometimes innocent bystanders get killed as well. There are these cases. I think that Israel should be more cautious uh, when it applies force. And I think that there's a bigger question as well. The IDF is always concerned regarding preventing the next attack. But we have to also look at the fact that maybe our actions are contributing to the whole situation. Um, you cannot only blame the Palestinians for not doing enough. You have to ask yourself, how has Israel treated the Palestinian authority? Wasn't uh, Abbas's regime, hasn't it become a sort of an Israeli subcontractor for security and nothing more uh, than that? So the frustration on the Palestinian side is rather clear. And I think that the fact that the army, in its view, it has to send those troops in every day because there's information about upcoming attacks. But in the end, I think that in, in, in some way, we're actually contributing to this becoming a bigger deal. And I think that there's a possibility that there will be uh, a massive operation in the Northern West Bank sometime in the next month or so around Janine. There's also a possibility of some kind of escalation over the Temple Mount during the Jewish uh, holidays, which are late September and early October. So this is becoming quite dangerous to all sides involved, especially, as I mentioned, Lapid and Gantz's parties who are going to elections by November 1st. Just before we let you go, um, Amos, some fascinating reporting from you earlier this week, uh, suggesting the American embassy in Israel has uh, been asked to prepare a report on a, on a part of the Israeli army that I think will fascinate people outside the country, just even its existence, that the Israeli army has a battalion, Netza Yehuda, of, made up of ultra-Orthodox Jews, Haredi Jews, which has been, I know, mired in some controversy. Just tell us what your reporting was, but also just about this battalion, which, as I say, I think will fascinate people outside the country. Okay, this battalion was established in 98 or 99 as a way to convince some young Haredi uh, men to enlist to the army and to take their share of the collective burden, if you like, of uh, military service. So every year there are a few hundred young men who come from ultra-Orthodox community who actually, actually they volunteer to the army because they, they could be exempted and they join uh, the army. The problem is usually that they don't get the actual numbers they want. And in order for this battalion to exist, they have to enlist more men some of them are very, very religious, but not Haredi, not ultra-Orthodox, but, but in fact, uh, Zionist religious. Some of them even coming from settlements or what we call the, the hilltops youth, the, the guys in illegal outposts and so on. And during the years in this battalion, we've seen a, quite a high number of incidents in which they either treated Palestinians badly, uh, hit uh, Palestinians, uh, shot Palestinians when this is what was necessary. I think it's out of the ordinary. It's not the usual conduct of most IDF units. It's not that far away, but there are more cases, more incidents which the army treats uh, in disciplinary ways and, and, and so on. Uh, there have been a few reports in recent months of uh, of such incidents. That the most significant one was an 80-year-old uh, man who was detained by those soldiers near Ramallah and later died. It also turned out that he was an American citizen. And this is, I think, why what got Washington interested. And recently, analysts in the American embassy in Jerusalem began interviewing both Israelis and Palestinians about the conduct of that battalion even suggesting that maybe the uh, the Americans would apply some pressure on the IDF to pull the battalion out of the West Bank, send them somewhere else in order to prevent 
such incidents. I think it's quite a rare case in which the Americans intervene in such a way. It's somewhat connected to what we mentioned before, their response, the State Department response to uh, the investigation regarding Shireen Abu Akleh. Again, it will give the Israeli politicians an opportunity to say we're defending our troops and we'll, we'll not let foreign uh, forces uh, interfere and so on. It, it, it's a very interesting story, both the battalion and, and the actual fact that the Americans are uh, involved in this, but I, I don't think it will change much on the ground. Amos, we could go on forever <laughs> talking to you, <clears throat> but we um, kind of acknowledge the fact that you have actually a job to do. So we thank you very much. And we will find, something tells me we will find a good enough excuse to bring you on again. Thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always good to hear from Amos Harel, uh, who is absolutely the preeminent journalist in his field. Tremendous insight from him, as always. I agree. I, was, I actually particularly enjoyed listening to you two talk in that conversation. Um, but yeah, we have some more Israeli politics to discuss, Jonathan. Who would believe it? We talked about a little bit about Lapid and uh, Gantz in our conversation with uh, Amos. And last time, I think we focused a lot about the ben- on the Benkvil phenomenon. This week, if I may, uh, we're 53 days to elections. I want to talk a little bit about... Avigdor Lieberman. Uh, now, I want to talk about him because this week a story came out on Channel 13, our competing channel, that aired allegations by a former activist uh, in Lieberman's Israel Beitenu party. Really, Jonathan, you think like you, you believe you've seen everything in Israeli politics, but this man uh, went on air claiming that Lieberman asked him to kill a police major general in exchange for money. He said, I'd pay you this to kill someone. And this was 20 years ago. This is quite an amazing story. I should say that it was generally been met with a heavy dose of skepticism because, you know, all sorts of questions like why come forward now uh, has been obviously vehemently denied uh, by uh, uh, Lieberman himself, who's also suing him after what he said. And he's basically, Lieberman, uh, putting the blame on Netanyahu, saying this is part of a Netanyahu smear campaign. Let's just pause on that for a minute. I mean, think of these two uh, men, right? Lieberman was Netanyahu's right-hand man for years. He built the brand that is Netanyahu, uh, only to uh, change sides and became his become his bitter critic. Lieberman's surprise decision in 2019 not to join Netanyahu's coalition is basically what started uh, Netanyahu's uh, downward uh, spiral. So this is a very interesting uh, individual. Also, we should probably mention a uh, very, very anti. Uh, Arab. He used to talk about Israeli Arabs in, in, in the worst possible way and say that they need to move to the uh, West Bank. He completely changed his tune on this, right? I mean, he was the, he's the minister who sat in the government with the first uh, uh, Arab-Israeli party. Now he's changed his rhetoric to being a more anti-Haredi uh, uh, um, rhetoric. But the, the interesting question here, of course, is also what is happening to the Russian voice, what we used to call the Russian vote in Israel. Uh, this is a very interesting question as we move forward uh, toward these uh, these elections. I, I, the Russian angle on this is the thing that came into my mind as soon as I heard about this story, because it seemed to me that, you know, I don't know the tr- truth of this claim or not, but it kind of rests on, in a way, a, a, a kind of stereotype, a prejudice about Russians. Let's remember mm-hmm. that Viktor Lieberman was always described in all profiles. The first line would mention that he was a former nightclub bouncer. <laughs> And there is just something of that archetype that fits, that makes it, you know, believable 
that you know the in with all the stories about russian mafia etc that it makes it uh, at least plausible that someone would claim that he plotted to have somebody rubbed out to bump off somebody who was in his way you know it plays into that body of stereotypes mm-hmm. about russians that exist um so that immediately leapt out of me but yeah i think the question you raise about what happens to the russian voice is fascinating i remember when the as we then described it, the Soviet Aliyah, you know, mm-hmm. Jews from the Soviet Union K were were either coming or were expected to come to Israel. And it's very much in our minds in the, you know, week after Gorbachev's death, as the Soviet Union was breaking up. I remember people on the left of politics in Israel saying, in a way, quite a racist assumption, actually, people who had seen a lot of Mizrahi voters go for the right to for the Likud thinking, ah, now we're going to get all these Russian intellectuals who love reading Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. These Jews are going to come here. And of course, they'll rally to us. This will build up again, the kind of mainly Ashkenazi Labour Party, that part of Israel that had been shrinking demographically. This is going to be great news for us wrong (laughs) is russian voters came over and it turned out they didn't like anything that smacked of socialism and uh you know the kibbutz movement and all its history sounded to them like collective farms you know they wanted nothing to do with it and they went rightward and became voters for the right and often quite for the hard right Mm -hmm. and just as you mentioned lieberman's anti-arab politics all of which is a way of saying 30 years on where do you think those russian born or russian heritage uh, voters are going to cast their lot. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I, it, it's totally fascinating. And you, and you mentioned and, and you talked about that, right, about how uh, they turned the, most of this immigration. We're talking about a million people all in all, uh, which really is a huge societal change in a country of, of merely nine million. Uh, a lot of them turned out to be right wing voters, not only because of the reasons that, that you mentioned, but also because they didn't like the idea of making concessions to anyone, not to the Palestinians, not to anyone else. Now we are talking about I think we can generally say that the Russian vote has turned into the Israeli vote, right? These million uh, first generation, second generation immigrants are now completely integrated into Israeli society. So it's not like what you need is what once we thought, right? You need a party that the the head of the party will be a Russian immigrant like Lieberman or like Sharansky in the past, and they will bring in the Russian vote. That's less and less of that. But also we are forgetting the important element and what happened in this past year, and that is the war in Ukraine. And this will have, many analysts believe, a major effect on what we call, we still call the Russian vote, because many of these voters are anti-Putin. Many of them oppose what he's doing in uh, Ukraine. A lot of them, by the way, there are about 150,000 who came after uh, the annexation of Crimea. And they see Lieberman particularly as someone who admires Putin, right? Who has very strong connections to Russia. I will just remind you that after the massacre in Bucha, Right. And we were talking about this a lot about how Israel being very careful not to talk against Russia, but Lapid himself, you know, castigating Russia for after this massacre. Lieberman came out and said something like, there are bad people on both sides. I kid you not. I mean, this is what he said. He said there are accusations. Russia's making accusations. Ukraine is making accusations. We don't know the full picture. Something like that. That, that came out, you know, pretty uh, was a remarkable statement on his part. So he's seen as someone who's very pro-Putin. That might hurt him with his own constituency. By the way, so is Netanyahu seen pretty pro-Putin, although a lot of the Russian vote, uh, we're talking about about 14 mandates if they all come out to vote. That's a lot. Uh, a lot of them are voting, still voting Likud, 
but also Yeshatid, which is important because Lapid himself was very anti-Russia uh, in this war in Ukraine. So I think it's also a very important question, what will happen with the Russian vote vis-a-vis -vis this story? And, and, and the generational point, I suppose, mm -hmm. is that the younger generation is less Russian yep. and more Israeli. Right. And I would guess that the those Jews who do have some kind of strongman appeal to or aff affinity with Putin would be the older True. ones, yep. and younger ones would be against Putin and against the mm -hmm. war. Can I have permission to tell one little anecdote which actually sheds light, I think, a little bit on this point of I was making about political affiliation. So in 1988, I made my first visit to Moscow. And like lots of other Jewish students my age, I was there in part to visit Soviet Jews who had been refused permission to leave the country. I'd been given a whole lot of stuff, material to give them, you know, to Jewish prayer books and other things. But amongst them was some stuff about, you know, pictures, calendars of Israel. Mm -hmm. And this was when I got the first intimation that these people are not going to be the voters <laughs> that, you know, many in Israel expected. I pulled out one of these calendars and in it was a picture, a classic sort of kibbutz image of like a tractor in a field. Mm -hmm. And the, I remember the face of the woman I was showing to fell. And she thought, oh no, Israel is going to be exactly like here yeah. with these propagandistic images of tractors and collective farms and so on. And I thought they want to run a mile from anything that smacks of that. And yet the old Israeli Labour Party had kind of quite an old Soviet vibe about it with kibbutz and the sort of, you yes. know, workers toiling in the fields, etc. That's when I realised, actually, of course, this group is going to rebel and recoil mm -hmm. from anything that smacks of old-fashioned left, and mm -hmm. they will be voters for the right. So I had a little clue of that um, all those years ago. We should hand out some awards, my British friend. We should. Shall I begin with a Mensch yes, award? Yes, I think that's um, This week. Um, I don't often, uh, and we don't often talk about the Women's National Basketball Association League of the United States, the WNBA. Uh, but this week saw the retirement after a stellar 19 years, all of which spent with the Seattle Storm of... Sue Bird, a phenomenally accomplished competitor in the sport of women's basketball. She won four titles, five Olympic gold medals, 41 years old now and retiring. But she is a Jewish basketball player, a Jewish hooper. Is that the right word? Um, and she has done extraordinarily well as an athlete. But, a, but something of a role model to young women and girls who play the game, partly because she was unabashedly uh, out and proud in her Jewish identity, raised in both Catholic and Jewish upbringings, but at one point applied for Israeli citizenship and uh, unabashed, as I said, in her identity. And that was uh, inspirational for many young girls and women playing the game and playing sports generally to see someone who um, celebrated their identity in that way. So we wish a happy retirement to Sue Bird, and she is our Mensch of mm -hmm. the Week. We can add Serena Williams to the same story, but we'll, we'll, I, I like the fact that you we chose her. We could. <laughs> you mean a little-known Serena Williams athlete also <laughs> retired this week, and when all also the world the was paying attention, all the world was paying attention to Sue Bird, uh, we find Roman Unholy for a struggling up-and-coming <laughs> tennis player by the name of Serena Williams, who also put down 
her Cheers. well she put down her racket um yes we can give her an honorable mention yes uh, this just week just thought Why we'd not? mention that just thought we'd mention okay chutzpah award of the week i have to admit i'm a little bit torn on this because i'm not sure it's one of these stories that you're not really sure if you want to put it in the mensch award or the chutzpah award because i think it could we can make the case for both but okay i will uh, i will talk about uh Nobel laureate for physics giorgio parisi he is a professor and he uh, spoke to italians this week and tried to convince them uh, of a new way to cook pasta to reduce the energy bills. It's called passive pasta. We'll just say that you can boil the water, turn off the gas halfway, and let it cook itself. Some people in Italy would consider this sacrilegious, to be honest. But, um, you know, this obviously created quite a ruckus in, in, in the country. And this is what Italians were all talking about. So I'm, I'm, again, I'm a little bit torn if you give him the chutzpah award or the mensch award. And I was especially torn because I was trying to find the, the Italian phrase for chutzpah, which is very, very, very uh, difficult uh, to do. I would, but uh, if anybody could find that, it would be you. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're trying. I, I'm expanding our listenership here. I'm talking to our Italian community, <laughs> if you don't mind. No, but I think I think I think at the end of the day, uh, il premio della vergogna, which means sort of the, the award for embarrassment, insult, or something like that, would probably be the right thing to say. But I was thinking about a, this a, a worthy uh, winner, I think. Now, Ms. Ms. Levy. Yes, sir. You and your tribe mm -hmm. have made the news this week. I'm going to leave it to you to tell us this new claim to fame for your, well, tribe is the right word. One of the 12 tribes, the Levi's, the Levites, mm -hmm. they're big. Tell us about it. We're very it. big. We're very big, Jonathan. I, I, I realize it took you a long time to figure this out, but I would just uh, quote for you uh, a tweet by Gil Hoffman. He's a former uh, Jerusalem Post uh, political uh, analyst. And this is what he wrote on Twitter. I just have to read it out to you. I'll do it slowly because I'm enjoying it. For anyone else who cares about what tribes lead Israel, he writes, if Netanyahu returns to power for the first time ever, the Jewish state will have a prime minister, a president, Isaac Herzog, and an IDF chief of staff appointed this week, Herzia Levi, who are all Levites. We rule, my friends. That's all I wanted to say. Uh, not only religious duties, we also rock in other aspects. And I remind you, we were not given any land so we had a tough time, but we still managed to be very successful. Yeah, no, I'm impressed. And um, I, you failed to mention the uh, role, which is part of the Israeli constitution, of lead TV journalist and news anchor. <laughs> that is also mm -hmm. held uh, by the Levies or Levites. Mm -hmm. um, you've done very well. Cohenim, Cohen's, you need to sharpen yep, up your act. You, you know, you're dragging, you're, you're lagging. Um, as for the rest of us, who are designated what? Just people of Israel, well, isn't it? You know, it's, to be honest, it's, like Maimonides used to say that you're all okay, but you're all, you know, he used to say that everyone can achieve greatness, but it's not true. It's only us, to be honest. <laughs> we'll have to smarten up our act, fellow non-Levites, non-Cohens. Um, this has been Unholy. If you are enjoying it, remember to spread the word on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter or whatever is your social media platform of choice or you could just go old school and tell your friends and family <laughs> hey you should be listening to unholy what's wrong with you put it on um who do we thank Yoni? guy glazer omer primat rom atik yair bashan jonathan we will meet next week we will look forward to it. Me This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. 
Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.